last Lord's Day we considered God as Creator. And specifically, or, or, or in addition to that, we considered that God as triune God is still Creator. That when we say that God created, we're talking about the God revealed in Scripture who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father had a role in creation. The Son has a role in creation. The Spirit has a role in creation. All three persons working together in creating everything that is. There's nothing, and we say that in in John's Gospel, nothing exists apart from God's creative power. Well, this week in, in chapter 32, we're taking some of the same truths that we saw last week and going a step further. Not only is He the Creator, but He's the Sustainer. Last week there was a, 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 a reference mentioned or, or a contrast given to the beliefs of what we would call open theism. The idea that in eternity past God uh, decided to create, that He created and just sort of set the world in motion as, as one might wind a watch and He turned it loose and it has just continued to work until this day. That He Himself sort of has either left or stays disassociated from creation, but it still works in the way that He designed it, and I'm using that in the past tense, He designed it to work in the past. Now, if God had done that, if God had merely said, I'm going to start this thing, we're thinking back however long it's been, if God had said, I'm going to start this thing and leave, and that's how it worked, that in itself would be an amazing feat of power. That, that, that from the beginning of the world until now, all things have continued as they were. Just continuing day and night, day and night. But it's contrary to Scripture. It, it, that would be contrary to what Scripture reveals about God and what Scripture reveals about the, the nature of God as a personal God uh, working in every detail of creation. Uh, Ephesians 1.11 says that He works all things according to his, his will, His good purpose. Everything is being worked actively by God, and that's what we're going to see this evening. Now, I'm going to read, we, we read a little bit from our confession last week, and I'll read just one paragraph this week just to show you that what we're seeing here is what we confess uh, as a congregation. This is in chapter 5 of Divine Providence. We read, God, the good creator of all things, so that's creation, we saw that last week, in His infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by His most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created. So God had an end in mind for everything that is created and it says that He, he in His power and wisdom, works so that everything in creation, moment by moment, is being brought to the purpose for which He designed it. And we see specifically that word, uphold. In His infinite power and wisdom, He doth uphold all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least. That's an an all-encompassing statement. Nothing is outside of that. All creatures, all things... From the greatest to the least. That's everything. He actively upholds, or the word that we're going to see this evening, sustains everything. 
actively right now. He, he has not created and then left. He's actively involved in his creation. So, so that's, that's where we're going. So we have two headings, two main ideas in this chapter. The first is that God is sustainer, and then later we'll see God as owner. So I'll begin reading here, and I'll, I'll add comment as we go along. God the sustainer. The scriptures teach us that God is not only the creator, but also the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Two different roles, we might say. Nothing that exists, exists or would exist apart from Him. If He were to turn away from His creation, even for a moment, all would perish. We owe our every breath and every movement to Him. Now think about the the vastness of statements like that. Every breath, the, the mass of air in, in being inhaled and exhaled, the lungs of every person in this room. That's amazing. But every person on the planet, every creature that takes in air and exhales air, God works giving every breath. He, we owe our every breath and every movement to Him. The, the, the flap of, of the wings of every insect and bird on the planet, the, the movement of every eyeball on the planet looking here and there is owed to Him. It wouldn't happen apart from Him. Every being, from the highest angel to the lowest worm, lives in absolute dependence upon God. Both the man who bows in humble worship and he who clenches his fist in defiance of God have this in common. They live and breathe and move by His gracious, sustaining power. They exist because He made them. And they breathe because He gives them breath. If He turned away from them, they would turn to dust. And that is, we'll see later, that is biblical language. But even if we we wanted to use that idea of returning to dust, we would still have a God who is sustaining the molecular structure of particles of dust. He upholds the dust. If it weren't for him, the dust would cease to be. He's the sustainer of all things. Let's turn first to 1 Timothy 6.13. 1 Timothy 6.13. We have a very brief but powerful declaration about God and about creation's dependence upon Him. He says, this is Paul talking to Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now, the the fill in the blanks would be God gives life to all things or everything. The subject is God. What does God do? God gives life. Remember, God is life. Anything that has life gets it from God. Every instant, every moment where life is existent in a living being, that life is being communicated from God. Turn to Job chapter 12. Job chapter 12. 
here he says, the scriptures teach us not only that God created the universe, but also that He faithfully sustains it by His power. To, to sustain means to, to ensure the ongoing life or existence of a thing. To make sure that it continues in, its, in, its, in, in whatever it's doing. And that's what God does. He sustains the universe. Without God, the universe would never have been brought into existence. And without His continued care, the universe and every living thing would perish. All things that exist do so in absolute dependence upon Him. Job chapter 12, verse 10. In His hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Now when you see that, children, when you see that God has something in His hand, you ought to say, hold on a second, that's strange because we know that God doesn't have hands. God does not have a body like us. God is spirit. So what does it mean when we talk about God's hand? Well, it, it could mean many things. It could mean His, his power. It could mean his, his provision or His care. It could mean the, the exercise of His prerogative as God. He, he's carrying out whatever is in His hand to do. So when we see that in His hand, in, in God's hand, is the life of every living thing, the breath of all mankind. That is saying God has the authority, the right, and the prerogative as God to dispense the breath of every living thing, the breath or the life, the spirit of every living thing. He gives it Himself. It comes from Him. A lot of times we, we almost exclusivize the work of God as if it were merely spiritual, merely salvific. And... You've got the Christians over here who have the work of the Spirit of God and God is working with them. And then everybody else is somehow just maintaining life and existence and God is, has just left them to themselves. No, even for them, God is giving them life and breath and everything. His Spirit is sustaining the life of everything. That's what we're seeing here. Turn, turn over to Job 34. Verses 14 and 15. And here we have what is sort of the negative or the opposite of, the, of this truth. Job 34, verses 14 and 15. If he, that is God, should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. There's that, that reference, that we would return to dust. If God said, you know what, I'm going to pull back my spirit, everything goes back to dust. Why? Well, we go back to the beginning. God forms man from the dust of the earth. Well, what do we have at that point? Well, we just have a, I don't know what it looked like. I'm assuming it was like a physical body like we have, but there's no life. And God breathed into it the breath of life. He gave it life. And what he's saying here is, if God should at any, any moment say, you know what, I'm going to pull that back, well, then everything would return to a lifeless form of some sort. Human beings would return to the dust, he says. Let's look at Psalm 104. Verses 27 to 30. Considering, remember, his God's continued care 
for every living thing. Psalm 104, verses 27 to 30. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. Does God have hands? No. When God opens up from His bountiful provision, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Now, we didn't read the whole psalm, but if we went back to earlier in, in the, the psalm, you, can, you could probably look at it. You, you have references to things like uh, every beast of the field, wild donkeys, uh, the birds of the heavens, the earth, the grass that grows for livestock, verse 14, plants for man to cultivate, the trees of the Lord, cedars of Lebanon, birds building their nests, the stork with its home in the fir trees, wild goats and rock badgers. It's listing all types and kinds of created things. And then it comes to that verse 27. These all, all of this, every created thing, every living thing is looking to God for its provision, for its life, for its sustenance. And He gives it in its due season. That's, that's the point. Everything that is living is constantly receiving from God. He sustains His creation. Number three, it is important to understand that not only the creation but also the sustaining of the universe is the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. What do the following texts teach us about this truth? So the first is Colossians 1.17. Let's turn there. Colossians 1.17. We read this, this whole section, verses 15 through 20 last week. And it, it really is probably one of the loftiest Christological statements in the New Testament in, in paragraph form. Colossians 1.17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now we would ask, who is He in this portion of Scripture? We go back up to verse 13. We have a reference to His beloved Son, that is the Son of God. And in the first portion of this paragraph, we're, we're talking specifically about the Son of God as He is in His divine nature, God. According to His divine nature. If we were thinking only of His human nature or His mediatorial work, that, that comes later in the paragraph. But when it says, He is before all things. Well, we know the human nature of the man Jesus was not before all things. That's a... A creation that came in into being in time. But the divine nature of the Son is before all things. And here it says, In Him all things hold together. Look at the note there. The phrase, hold together, comes from the single Greek verb, me. And there you can see how this word's put together. Soon, meaning with, and to, and, or together, and he stay me, meaning to stand, which can also mean to unite, set together, or endure. The Son of God is not only the creator of all things, but also the sustainer or conserver of all that he has created. As the divine logos or word, that's from John 1, 1 5, he is the unifying principle of all that exists. 
From the greatest galaxies to the tiniest particles, everything is held together in the Son, the Son of God. Hebrews 1.3. Let's look there. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now again, if we only got one verse, we ought to ask, Who is He? We'll go back up to verses 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. That was last week. And then we get to verse 3. He upholds the universe. That same Son, the Son of God, through whom creation came into being, is also the Son who sustains it or who upholds the universe. He points out there in the note that the word upholds comes from the Greek word pharaoh, which means to bear or carry. We marvel at the idea of mighty Atlas of Greek mythology groaning under the weight of the world. Yet Christ upholds the entire universe with a mere word, a simple, effortless command. With a word, the universe was created. And with a word, it is sustained. Such is the power of God. And then he takes us back to Psalm 104. I'll, I'll, I'll turn there just because the point being made is different now. But we're showing that the creative and sustaining acts of, of God are, are triune, or works of the, of the triune God. We've seen how the Son takes part. Psalm 104, 27 to 30. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. And he says in verse 30, Creation is seen as an ongoing work of God by the power of His Spirit. Even though the birth of a child is through natural processes, it is not apart from the work of God. In Psalm 139, 13, David testified, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. It is through the powerful, energizing, life-giving work of the Spirit that the sustaining work of the Father and Son is accomplished. Remember, all of the works of God outside of God are one. Father, Son, and Spirit all working in all of the works outside of God. There, there is no work that God does outside of Himself that is of one person to the exclusion of the other two. They all three are working together. Why? Because it's one God. You say, that's, that's very confusing. It, it really is. It's, it's a mystery that we receive by faith because of, that's what the Bible teaches. So the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all work together in not only creating but sustaining creation. 
Let's turn to Acts chapter 17. And here we'll read an even larger portion. Acts chapter 17 verses 22 to 31 is Paul's sermon to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on Mars Hill. The passage contains one of the greatest discourses on God as both creator and sustainer of the universe. And then he's going to give us some declarations and we're going to fill in some blanks here. But I want to read the whole, the whole section first just to, to set this in your mind. And, and it's often been pointed out how these sermons that Paul preaches or that we read of in the book of Acts differ, whether Paul's, differing, or whether Paul's dealing with Jewish uh, people or, or Gentiles. Here he's speaking to Gentile people, philosophers. Acts 17, beginning at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. So several statements. First of all, in verse 24, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. The note says, The Apostle Paul first establishes God as the creator of all things. This is the foundation of God's claim upon creation. In other words, what he's saying is he starts by saying God made it. Okay, if God made it, there are some implications. What he's saying is one, of, one implication is now God has a claim on what he's made. He goes on to say there in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Now the word... Lord means ruler, master, dictator, sovereign, potentate, the one who has the authority and the control. He says in the note, as the creator of all things, God has the sovereign right to rule over things. That's the implication. God made it. Step number one. Okay, since He made it, He gets to rule it. He's the Lord of it. Verse 25. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
He says in the note, God has a claim upon all things, both by right of creation and by right of His benevolent sustaining of all that He has made. He made it, therefore He gets to rule it. And He also gives His attention to the moment-by-moment upkeep and sustenance of it. Therefore, He gets to rule it. Every breath, every beat of every heart, and every good gift are all from God. That's James 1.17. In light of God's benevolent giving and man's absolute dependence upon Him, man's ingratitude is inexcusable. Inexcusable. Verse 28, In Him we live and move and have our being. This is an interesting historical fact. This quote is likely taken from a poem attributed to Epimenides of Crete from around 600 B.C., which relates the hymn of Minos, a figure of Greek mythology, to his father Zeus. It is interesting to note that just two lines earlier in the hymn is found the quote which Paul uses in Titus 1.12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Although Paul is using a declaration from the Greek poets, he's not endorsing their polytheistic ideas. He's simply using their own language to point them away from what they worshipped as unknown to the true and living God of Scripture. And we also see there Paul read old books. 600 B.C., that's old, but Paul was aware of the, the, the writing and the culture of his, of his day. So the point is God sustains everything. He didn't just create it and leave. He created it and He sustains it. He gives life and breath to everything, every, everything that exists, down to molecular structure of even inanimate objects. It would not continue if God were not sustaining its existence. Now we come to the second heading. God is the owner of all. God is the owner of all. He says, God is the creator and sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. Therefore, it is not wrong that He claims all things as His own. One of the first truths that must be comprehended if we are to have a right understanding of God and our place in His creation is that we are not our own. We were not made for ourselves. We belong to the One who has made us and we are responsible before Him to live according to His will and for His glory and good pleasure. I've said many times that we'll often find ourselves in these arguments about theology and in particular God's sovereignty and salvation. And, and my response is, listen, if you study who God is, if you, if you just take three minutes and consider what every, every Christian confesses about God, He is creator, He is sustainer, He is owner, to me that settles every question with regard to this, His sovereignty and salvation. He, he owns it. Because He created it. He can do whatever He wants to with it. He designed it for His own purpose. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. So number one says, In the Scriptures, a person's name has great significance in that it often describes who he is and reveals something about his character. So now let's turn to Genesis 14 and see some of these names or ascriptions given to God. Genesis 14, and we have two references here. First, there's Melchizedek speaking in verse 19. He blessed him. This is he, Melchizedek, blessing Abram. 
he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So verse 19, he's possessor of heaven and earth. And then verse 22, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So we have two, two verses there, two times we have these references. God Most High, Possessor of Heaven and Earth. The Lord God Most High, Possessor of Heaven and Earth. And he tells us there in the note, the, the word possessor comes from the Hebrew word kana, which means to get or acquire, and is used of God to communicate that He is both the Creator and the Possessor of the universe. That's the same word that's used in Proverbs 8, where it says that when, when wisdom is speaking... And wisdom refers back to God and says, He possessed me from of old. It's the same word, possessor. It's, like he said, it's used in reference to purchasing or acquiring things. Well, when you buy something, it's yours by, by right. By legal right, you own it. When we say God is possessor of heaven and earth, we're not saying that He, he bought it from someone else and came into ownership, but we're saying it's His. He owns it by right because He's God. Because He made it, He owns it. Number two, the following passages contain two of the most important statements in all the scriptures with regard to God's ownership of His creation. Consider carefully each verse and then identify the truths that are being communicated. How do they demonstrate God's claim upon creation? So we'll turn first to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. This is a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So, first question, identify the truth that's being communicated. Well, God is the possessor. The earth is the Lord's. He owns it. And... The fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He's saying everything in existence God owns. What is God's claim? How does it demonstrate God's claim? Verse 2, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. I take that to be merely saying God's the one who created it, who built it, who ordered it. Therefore, He owns it. It's His. Now how should we respond? Many ways, whenever you see a reference to the fullness of something, usually that's pointing us to something good, something helpful, some be something beneficial, something even delightful or delightsome to us and to our souls. And so when we see that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, we, we might think in particular of all of the good, beneficial, uh, helpful things that are contained in the world God owns all of that, and yet what does He do? He gives it to us. We, we ought to be grateful. We ought to be, be uh, as I say, when it rains, we ought not to, to put on a, a furrow our brow. We ought to be glad that we have rain, that we have uh, everything that God gives us. Psalm 89, 11.
Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. We see the same truth. Every created thing, when you see heavens and earth, that's summarizing every created thing, they are yours, they belong to God. By what claim? The end of the verse, you have founded them, you established them, you, you set them up, you created them. God is creator, therefore everything that is created God owns. Number three, the following texts from Job and Psalms communicate to us a very important implication of God's ownership of creation. So let's look at Job 41.11. Job 41.11. I've heard that some of you children are, are using this time to practice your page-flipping skills. That's good. Get good quick in that. You might lick your fingers. Eventually, the pages in your Bible will get real good and greasy and sticky. But it's good to turn to all these things and, and become familiar with, with your copy of God's Word. Job 41.11. This is God speaking, and He asks, I, I think we understand this is a rhetorical question, Who has first given to me that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The answer is no one. No one. No one has ever given anything to God that then puts God in their debt to do something back to them. It's sort of related to what we saw this morning about uh, seeking a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. There's nothing that we can come and do and say, well, God, we did all the right things. You must respond. You must give. You owe it to us. He doesn't owe us anything. We don't, we don't give Him anything. We don't help Him out. We don't aid Him in any way. The next one is Psalm 50, verses 10 to 12. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. Let me, uh, I want to read verses 7 to 15 I've, I've, in order to draw your attention to what, what is happening here. Psalm 50 beginning at verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And I've pointed out many times this passage is referencing their worship. And when he says, the passage we know most readily or we hear most often, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns everything. That's the point. He's the owner of everything. What, how should we respond in light of this? Well, especially with regard to our worship. We don't bring anything to God to aid Him in our worship. We're not helping Him out. This is something that 
I have to remind myself of regularly, come to terms with, for, for whatever service, for whatever you might do in preaching, whatever you might do in listening. I tell myself in preaching, you tell yourself in listening. You're not helping God out. You're not, you're not blessing Him with your efforts. You're not making it any easier for Him to do whatever He has designed in order to do in, in, in anything, but especially in our worship. In all my preaching, I'm not helping God right now. I, I'm, I am providing God with a vessel that He has to sustain, uphold, help, give life and breath and everything, and then maybe He can use that as a vessel to convey some truth. Whatever God might do through us, He, he does in spite of the fact that we bring Him only more need to work with. He, he, he owns everything. Anything that we might do for Him is... is is only because of what he's first given to us, and and when when we we need to keep that in mind, it might be an encouragement if you're talking to someone who's lost. Let's let's just imagine. Let's put ourselves in in in, in the place we all wish we were. Somebody walks up to you and they just say, "Look, could you please just tell me how to be saved?" They they just pitch you a softball. Okay, we we can't even utter. A, a pretty pathetic gospel presentation if God does not hold the gray matter of our brains together and keep our teeth in our mouths while we talk. God has to, He's doing all of that in every bit of effort that we bring. So we need to understand that, and maybe that'll help you. It'd be a reminder, although it does bring us low, it's a reminder God is not relying on your performance to do what He has ordered or designed to do. He's, he's not saying, boy, I hope they get this gospel right so I can save somebody. He's not doing that. We have to be willing, ready vessels, and we offer ourselves to Him and trust that He will use it. But we're not aiding Him. He already owns everything. The note there says, the great truth communicated in both of these texts is that because He is the creator and sustainer of all, God needs nothing from man and is debtor to no man. Everything that we may offer Him originated with Him and is His. God does not call us to serve Him because of some need, but in order that we might know the privilege of His fellowship and witness the demonstration of His power. So that when something happens that only God can do, we have to say, if we're honest, it's God's power. And especially the privilege of His fellowship. When you realize how utterly helpless you are, that pushes you into the arms of God even more. More prayer, more pleading, more, more felt weakness. And you learn, you, you grow in your fellowship with God as you, as you pour yourself out to Him. The last passage is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Deuteronomy 10, verses 14 and 15. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. 
He says one of the most amazing truths communicated to us in these two verses is the grandeur of God as the owner of all creation and His amazing grace toward His people. It is truly amazing that a God so great would set His affection upon us and love us. He created everything. He sustains everything. He owns everything. And yet, out out of all that He owns, He set His endearing fondness and affection upon His people. Now think about it. If you had all of creation at your disposal, every created thing at your disposal, and, and the opportunity was given you, take what you will. Whatever you, whatever you pick is yours. What would you pick? We, we, we think of, uh, well, I would, I would love a, a large piece of property, or maybe you would choose a, a mountain range, or maybe you would choose a, a, a mighty river or a beach or, or even an ocean or a nation. Maybe you would pick a star or maybe a galaxy to be yours. God has all of this at His disposal to take and, and to, to bring to Himself and to lavish His love upon for all eternity and He's chosen to set His affection upon sinful people like us and to make us not merely His, uh, his possession by, by creation, not merely His possession by sustenance that He keeps us alive and has kept us alive, but now by, by a salvific ownership in that He's purchased us with the blood of His own Son, secured us for Himself so that He could give us as a bride to His Son and pour out His love and affection upon us for all of eternity. That's what He chose. It's an amazing thing. It's an astonishing thing. We ought to be thankful to have such a God. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.